Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we cover a lot of ground with somebody who has covered a lot of ground in wealth management, managed accounts, and one of the fastest growing areas, direct indexing. We will indeed discuss direct indexing, the future of fintech, managed accounts, and even a current market outlook. That's with our guest, Art Lashawning, co-founder and CEO of Party Pre-Investment Partners. Art is also a dear friend, a mentor, and he has accomplished a whole bunch of other stuff. We're going to hear about some of it. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robert Murray. Okay, so we are recording this as we wrap up the year, just about Christmas time. So my question to you, Rusty, as we look back on 2022, what were some of the highlights for you in terms of the markets and also professionally and personally? Wow, this is two podcasts in a row throwing big questions at me. Okay. I know. we got to look see. back at the end of the year and yep. reflect, right? Well, I guess first and foremost, personally, great year. Everybody's healthy and happy. My 25-year-old daughter's in Paris. My 22-year-old son's in Norway. Just minutes beforehand, they just sent me some videos. They're surfing in Morocco. Sounds like a pretty rough life. A 19-year-old at Lawrence University of Kansas, 16-year-old at home. So Marla and I are really blessed. Everybody's, like I said, healthy and happy. It's all good there professionally. So let's see, I've been managing investment teams and portfolios for over 20 years. And I've obviously done a lot of writing and communicating. I've done even more of that this year. And really, in a very tough year, I've just got a lot of positive affirmation from that. So really helped a lot of investors and advisors. And so that's been very, very satisfying. And, and the portfolios I still oversee have done really well on a relative basis. That's cool. So I guess all in all, personally and professionally, uh, despite the markets, it's been a really good year. Right. Robin, how about yourself? You know, it's been a good year too. It's been busy. We got a kindergartner now, so he's doing well. I just got a report card from him today, so I never got one of those before, but <laughs> it was, uh, you know, nice to see. And yeah, I think overall it's been a pretty good year. Awesome. All right. Well, let's bring in our guest. I know you know him very well. Art Lashonig is the founder and CEO of Party Pre Investment Partners in Morrow Bay, California. Art, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to this conversation. This is going to be a fun podcast. I know it. So, well, first of all, we need to set the stage. And, you know, first of all, people can't see this, but you are already won the award for the best dressed podcast interviewee with your style and cowboy hat. I mean, you're looking, you're looking awesome. So, uh, of course, our first song, our initiation right, is a walk-up song. So I can only imagine, man, this is going to be good. What is your walk-up song that we can hear? So I've been listening to a lot of Robert Earl Keane and uh, Robert Earl Keane is a pretty popular, actually just retired. He just had his final concert ever after 30 years on the road. He's kind of a Texas based country blues or country singer songwriter, has a lot of bluegrass influence in his music. And one of my favorite songs that I've been really glomming onto recently of his, um, and I did have the pleasure of seeing him twice I'm sorry, three times in 2022. And I even cooked lunch for him, which I can come to if you want to. But <laughs> I've been listening to this song that I really like a lot called I'm Coming Home. And I love that song because I travel a lot. And I always kind of like at the end of the trip, I'm like, I'm coming home, made up my mind. That's what I'm going to do. Can't love nobody on the telephone. I'm coming home to you. And it's just a very catchy tune. So that's my walk. Okay, out. just one more verse. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. Nice. I think Robin's husband might like that too, given some of his taste in music. Yeah. I bet he likes Robert O'Kane. Plus, too. he just, yeah. yeah, he just went to Denver today. So I like that too. Nice. All right. Well, Art, you have worked at several major firms. You've got Fidelity on the list, which, of course, you worked there with Rusty. 
Morningstar, Russell Investments, and you're also a partner at NFL Enterprises and co-founder of Party Pre. So tell us more about your background and your current position. Yeah. So actually, you know, it's interesting. I'll actually go right back to the start because it actually kind of explains a little bit about how Party Pre's orientation is today. I actually started my career in 1978, November 78. I worked for IBM and I started as actually an intern while I was in college. I was there for 14 months full-time. And then when I graduated in 80, I joined Control Data. I was with a, another small timesharing company and then I joined Control Data and I got assigned to the finance unit there. And uh, it was kind of funny. I actually never planned to be in this business. I had received an acceptance to go get my doctorate in organizational development at Washington University in St. Louis. And the teaching fellowship I was looking for fell apart. And so I was like, okay, I'm out of money, right? And my parents have zero dough. So I deferred and I went to go work for Control Data. And they put me in the finance unit. I'm like, debits and credits and like stock prices. And they actually, my first job was to code our software and our database structure to enable banks and brokerage firms to do stock analysis, technical stock analysis. So that was the first thing I did. And then I got hired by SEI through you know, some references. And when I was there, we wound up purchasing the Becker system, the AG Becker Funds Evaluation, which was an investment consultancy, mostly geared toward institutional accounts, uh, defined benefit plans, unions, you know, government plans. And the prize for me doing a little bit of, I spent a year in Chicago working on that database that they had. The prize was they made me a consultant in the field with like zero experience. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And that's actually where I learned everything I needed to know uh, under, under the tutelage of a guy named Steve Pizarkowitz, who was a fantastic guy, went on to Bernstein and had a really nice career. I was in the investment consulting business there. And that's where I kind of picked up all my understanding of asset allocation and portfolio structure, portfolio development, even all of the analytics suite. I mean, we were very much, you know, it was an analytically oriented shop in terms of looking at portfolios and structure and style and all this other stuff. While I was at SEI, I worked underneath a guy named Paul Hondros, and Paul went to Fidelity to run the institutional services company that sold the mutual fund group there, which is now the Fidelity Advisor Funds to banks, brokers, investment advisors, financial planners, insurance agents. And I joined that unit. We worked on an asset allocation program. And then the management company where they actually manage the money in FMR said, why is an investment person in a distribution company doing asset allocation programs? So they airlifted me and a couple of my guys out and brought me into the management company. And we wound up hiring this really smart analyst to do our high yield work and our value work, who had been a recent Babson graduate and, you know, <laughs> brilliant background, came to us from Thomson Reuters, if I remember correctly. And we sucked up this guy named Rusty Vanneman. And we wound up putting him together with about a dozen other analyst types. And we wound up to create uh, Fidelity Strategic Advisors. And that was the unit that managed the high net worth uh, or the premium services clients at the time, they called it, accounts on an individual basis. And we either used a, a mutual fund wrap program, or we had at the time a product line that I affectionately called, bring us your tired, your sick, your hungry huddled masses. We would take everything in your brokerage account pull it in and then run it on an after-tax basis, which is frankly what we're doing today. So we spent time doing that. And then I was uh, recruited to go to Morningstar in 2000 to help them build Morningstar Investment Services. We actually spun off a subsidiary. This is prior to them buying Ibbotson. It was a weird time, candidly, because we were never in the asset management business. And so I was brought in to work on you know building that asset management company, which we did. And we Blew it up to you know three point one billion or so in, in about four or five years, and uh, it was like I said, it was a little strange for Morningstar because it was crossing the line from being an investment research house to that, and so that was a lot of fun. And then uh, I got recruited to go to Russell and run, uh, I think it was called the North American Equity Strategy Group. So any North American equity product, whether it was in a mutual fund or multi-manager account structure kind of had to run through our desk or my desk, you know, for both structure and this. 
And while I was there, interestingly, I was assigned to this analyst and his his desk was right outside of my office. And he had this huge whiteboard. The very first day I met him, he had this huge whiteboard on the outside of his office. And I walked up and there was just all these formulas all over the board. And I'm trying to look at this like, what? So I said to my boss, who was also one of my greatest mentors, Randy Lert, I said, who's the beautiful mind? And he said, oh, that's Joe Smith. Joe's now working for you. And I said, oh. So, um, and you know, the formulas were all over the place. And Rusty's laughing because here's how the story goes. So Joe and I teamed up and we did a number of really cool projects. And uh, Joe went off to business school. His first year of business school, he calls me and he says, hey, I'm looking to do an internship in between year one and year two. And I said, you know what? I'll call Rusty, my friend, Rusty Vanneman, who's the CIO at CLS. And so Joe was hired by Rusty and went to CLS. And so fast forward the clock, I actually was brought into the Orion side of the house to help them build their Astro program. And Joe got involved, as did Rusty, because we needed what we call plan B, which is not just give the technology to the advisors and let them try to do it themselves. And I let them try. But then we gave, we had an option where Rusty's group and Joe particularly would actually manage the assets. Fast forward the clock a couple of years later, and Joe decides that he kind of wants to go out on his own. And he called me and he said, hey, you want to do something? And I was like, Sure. So that's how Party Pre got started. So I've kind of, you know, moved down the path and I know these guys really well. Yeah. I just have a couple of quick things to add there. So one, mm-hmm. I can't believe I forgot to do this, but that day I interviewed with Art back in the mid nineties, I had to buy a new pair of shoes and I bought a pair of a, a type of shoe called an Alden, A-L-D-N brand. I still have those shoes. I still wear them all the time, but I forgot to wear them today though. I am wearing a different pair of Aldens. And I actually think, even though he said Babson and Thomson Reuters and all that, I think the reason why he hired me because I'd also had was uh, had worked on a cattle ranch, and I think that was I, I think that's the skills he really needed. I think that's what it was. That's exactly <laughs> correct. In fact, I have this kind of thing when I interview people. I always look to see kind of something what's unique about their resume. And Rusty had this thing that I I was a ranch hand, right? So I remember the first question, in fact, I never conducted interviews in my office. I always conducted them in a Starbucks. And Rusty walks in and I said to him, what do you mean you were a ranch hand at a cattle farm? And he looks at me like, oh, hi, my name is Rusty Vanneman. He's <laughs> like, well, that's an interesting first question. I couldn't care less about, frankly, what you did in, in the history. I mean, not care less. It was on the paper, so I didn't need to talk to you about yeah. it. But I did want to know what a, what, a, what a ranch hand does. And so anyway, I found that to be really interesting that a guy would come in. We also had a guy, by the way, who on the bottom of his resume, he was a defensive tackle for the University of Rhode Island. And I remember meeting him at the Starbucks, too. And I said to him, you're a tackle? And I was running back. And I said to him, you're a tackle? And of course, he was, you know, enormous, right? Big Billy Egan. So yeah, so those are, you're right, Rusty. The, the attraction was, uh, okay, now now that we've broken the ice with you, show me. And I had this vision of Rusty with these like cowhide gloves and throwing bells of hay and all this other kind of stuff. And it's true. Hey, Rusty I can do that. I can guy. still do it. <laughs> all right. Well, tell us more about Party Pre. And first, what's the story behind the name? Yeah. So the name, it's actually a French word, party pre or French phrase. And what it means is it is actually the construct of the design that an architect puts in place, right? So it's a term that's referred to architecture. And really what it is, it's what is the architect trying to do with the design? So uh, some of the famous examples happen to come from people like Frank Lloyd Wright, right? Every one of his buildings had a party pre. And the party pre was like, okay, one of them was water, one of them was light, one of them was, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And that would be his kind of construct that he would use to design the building. So in architecture, there is typically a party pre, like what is, what is trying to be displayed here? We chose that name because we feel that the work that we do on individual client portfolios has to represent the party pre that the advisor believes is the correct construct to handle client portfolio. So it's not just a collection of securities, but the securities themselves obviously have to be put together 
so that there's something that reflects either someone's personal preferences or their individual risk tolerances or their distribution requirements. And then across multiple accounts, like how their, their IRA works with their Roth, works with their personal account, their taxable account. So we kind of think of things as, you know, architectural terms that we're constructing a party pre, which is really like the objectives and the orientation of the portfolio. And then we, you know, we build it mechanically using a lot of highly quantitative, um, you know, techniques. So that's kind of where the name came from. We're trying to position ourselves as more architects of portfolios. If that makes any sense. I think it's pretty cool and it's a cool story. It totally made sense. Yeah. Let's talk about direct indexing. So this is one of our big topics for the podcast today. So and just what do financial advisors and investors need to know about direct indexing? What are the pros and the cons? And who does direct indexing make the most sense for? So, you know, it's interesting. I'm known for being verbose, so I'll try to be more summary today. There's two sides to the direct indexing story. One format is really what I would call more pure direct indexing, where you wind up taking an index, and let's just say, for simplicity's sake, a single index with a single asset class that you're going to try to mimic in a portfolio. So I want to mimic the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000, right? And the concept there is, you know, you try to come up with a collection of securities within that index that's a subset of the index, but how's the portfolio behave like the index? And the trick, of course, always is that you're merging in what the clients currently own. And so you have to do this transition to try to take what they own and build around it so that the portfolio actually works and behaves like the index itself, right? So that's more of a pure direct indexing thing. You know, in that situation, depending on what the clients come in with, how concentrated their portfolios are, how many positions they have, what the tax lots are, how challenging it is to move out tax lots, you know, you have to morph those portfolios over time like a piece of clay that you're going to hunk in, you know, mold into some, you know, beautiful um, structure. The other kind of direct indexing that we've seen, and I'd say that, you know, if there's a like an area that I would expect to be more growth, and I think that you had asked about this in some of the preps that we had for this, is that there's a direct indexing that smells more like a standardized SMA product. And actually what we see is in index land, the index providers, whether it's MSCI or whether it's S&P or whether it's Russell, they're starting to create miniature versions of kind of small versions or custom versions of their indexes. And they're kind of pre-packaging them so that people can take them off the shelf and put them in place. So for example, S&P with one of the clients that we work with that I can't name the name of the client, but they're a large, you know, uh, frankly, a technology company that supports advisors. S&P, they had asked S&P to create for them an ESG-sensitive version of the S&P 500 with 50 stocks and one with 100 stocks, right? So that's where S&P creates the index, right? And they apply the ESG screens, however the client wants them defined or whatever properties of ESG they want implemented. And then they prepackage an index. And what happens is the advisor then kind of uses a standard rebalancing tool to kind of build that client portfolio off of that standard index. Whereas in version one, you're working with a full slate of you know 500 or 1,000 securities and you're really custom tailoring the index structure around the client portfolio. So there's really a couple of versions of, of direct indexing that we see going on. When you get into multi-asset class, you start to add in certain asset classes um, ETF products. So there's an index base where it doesn't make sense to try to buy the individual securities, whether it's certain emerging market, you don't really do not want to try to do that. You know, it's kind of a, your standard run of the mill, developed market equity, you have enough GDRs and ADRs that you can kind of build an index off of what's traded here in the States. But in some other asset classes, particularly certain bond classes, you're, you're, you're somewhat times better off just doing, getting an ETF. So you would collapse those together in a multi-asset class portfolio. But kind of in your standard run-of-the-mill stuff, you either start out with a completely clean slate and all you know, access to all the securities and you really build it, very quantitatively driven exercise, or you take a model of an index and you deploy it. We actually see the where the indexers are going is they're realizing that there's a marketplace, particularly in advisor in the advisor community, to 
kind of prepackage these indexes with certain tilts and themes to them. So direct indexing obviously has been really, really hot. It's been a big topic and it's had the growth rates to back it up. How long do you think this runway is? I mean, how many years of like big time growth are we going to get direct indexing? And is it going to supplant ETFs in any way? No, on the ETF front, not necessarily. Because one of the questions that I didn't ask answer, which you asked, is where is it applicable in terms of size of accounts, right? Let me come back to that point. You know, first of all, the direct indexing business, I think the last kind of Cerulli thing that I saw was like direct indexing itself is like reported to be around 360 billion. Of course, parametric is one of the big, you know, the big beasts in that, that arena. Aperio is very big. Just Invest is now owned by Vanguard. They're very big. O'Shaughnessy got purchased and, you know, they're a smaller player, but, you know, still important. And so there's been a lot of growth in that area. And I think the advisory community likes the whole direct indexing story because really at the end of the day, it's being able to offer the client a custom portfolio, which helps differentiation. I think what people thought about, let me come back to the direct indexing, you know, ETF thing. I think, you know, if you kind of think about what ETFs did was they gave you mostly they're indexed. So it took away one level of risk that an advisor would have in that the risk of underperforming, right? If you own an ETF, you're going to perform with the market, right? And then if you do an asset allocation thing where you're putting all these things together, you're getting very good diversified exposure with seven securities or 12 securities, whatever's in your ETF portfolio, right? You can do it with a very tight and compact portfolio. The downside is you can't really do very much with it. You've got, you know, you do have tax lots that you can pick up that you can kind of harvest those every now and then, but you really don't have the ability to kind of twist and tweak the portfolio towards the things that we think people have been thinking about with twisting and tweaking, which is why the direct indexing thing kind of has come along, which is everything from, you know, mostly ESG related tilts or slants or exclusions that get built into the portfolio. Managing the individual tax lots of a set of securities that one acquires or has acquired over time, you know, particularly with some of these executives that have very, very concentrated positions in you know, company stock or you know, a handful of stocks, those need to be treated kind of differently. And you just can't like, put them into an ETF. You can kind of morph them and add the ETFs around it. But I think the answer is, oh, I, I can tailor this a little bit better. Obviously, there are some advisors that we see, not a lot, but there are some advisors that still like the old idea of factor tilting. Give me a momentum slant or a low vol tilt. I mean, low vol is popular. And I think something that could be considered a factor, but is really kind of more of a, an engineering issue, which is generating income. Like I need to really twist my security so that there's more income that I can have across the asset classes. Is we're seeing, you know, obviously the investor base has gotten a bit older. And so we're kind of at distribution or people are slowing down or retired. You know, they need to generate that income. And by using a direct indexing format, you actually have really good control over how you can actually engineer that answer. So I think that there's going to always be a place for ETFs, mostly because the type of work that is really, in my mind, what direct indexing is geared for or personalized indexing or personalized portfolio management is really for higher end clients. You know, if somebody comes in with a $200,000, $250,000 account, I would say to them, look, man, like if that's what your asset base is in your taxable account or your IRA, just buy a collection of ETFs because on a risk return basis, you're better off doing that. You're better off buying diversification through the ETF. And yeah, you can. I can take a two hundred fifty thousand dollar account and you know give you a fifty stock portfolio. Fifty stocks on the S and P five hundred is going to give you a two to three percent tracking error range, right? So you're really not going to be one hundred percent on the mark, right? Something like that. So then the question becomes, you know, at what size? And you know, like from our point of view, candidly, smaller accounts, like you know, south of a half a million dollars, south of four hundred thousand dollars. ETFs are great options for those. And I actually think that notwithstanding all the banging of the symbols that people have and, oh, we can now put this direct indexing down at $20,000 or like S Fidelity, 5000 Okay, good luck. You know, I own 0.4% of a share of Microsoft. Good for you. I own 0.2% of a share of Tesla. Good for you. I own 0.1% of a share of Amazon. Good for you. 
right? You can't vote that proxy. You actually have very little control over the tax manipulation of that, right? Because you're not having a full share to, to play with. So I would question like in the direct indexing in the smaller accounts, if your thing is, you're, well, I'm going to do fractionals and all this, why? As an advisor, that's a mess, right? I would just, you know, like for me, I'd be like, look, I'd say to my client, look, let's just go with the diversification scheme that we get in an ETF. They're cheap. Four basis points from S&P 500 from Vanguard. I'm in. 15 basis points, 20 basis points from more specialty, 30 basis points for some more specialty ETFs. I'm in, right? And, and you buy diversification. And you'll have certain little tax lots here and there you can mess with over time. But I, I actually don't see direct indexing blowing ETFs up. I think actually they were complementary offerings. Long would it answer to your question. <laughs> you gave me enough material. I think you just, I can write an article now. So thank you. <laughs> hey, so direct indexing. <laughs> so direct indexing is an example of technology, obviously. Hey, this is what I do every day. Yeah, I know exactly. The passion is coming through. So direct indexing is obviously technology that's helping investing and helping investors have better outcomes. So kind of same with fintech. What is fintech doing well and what could it do better in your opinion? Ah, great question. So first of all, I think, you know, if somebody said to me, hey, old man, you know, like according to your resume that you gave us 20 minutes ago, I'm kind of looking at my chart and saying, you've been doing this for 40 years next year. And the answer is that's correct. Right. And five years prior to that, I was in the technology side of the business. So technology is really driving the asset management business these days. And it's really funny when I first started my career, you know, like, you know, 83, 8045, you know, with SCI, you know, that was the old Wall Street days, you know, that was the old, you know, have a hunch, buy a bunch, as the Brits would say, right? Portfolios were just collections of securities that got sold to you, right? Brokers were kind of the kings of the hill, right? And then we went through the mutual fund and we kind of professionalized portfolio management for the retail client and, you know, started having firms like yourself, you know, do some very good work. In fact, you know, quite a number of firms create model portfolios of funds and ETFs and kind of create some pretty solid structures for people with, with ETFs or mutual funds that were very well screened by your due diligence staff, right? And I think that was a really, you know, like important thing that happened. What's happening now with technology is we're driving technology down to make it what I call we're simplifying the complex for the advisor. And I think there's quite a number of fintech firms out there, Orion being one of them, that is they're in the business of trying to create lots of technology or provide lots of technology and provide kind of seamless integration and use to simplify the advisor's ability to run a practice and a portfolio. And so I think that there's kind of a like every other industry, there's this like growth that has occurred where we were putting together all of the component parts of what the mosaic really will look like in, in you know years down the road. I think what we need to do is kind of start simplifying things again, right? Start consolidating a little bit more. In fact, I think that you know there was a recent um, research report that I looked where they're asking the advisors kind of like their top three issues that they deal with. And, you know, what was interesting was they wanted to reduce the number of asset management products on their platform was like one of the top. Doing unified managed households was another one that was at top. That was actually like one of the most dominant requirements. Platform consolidation and offering better construction tools. And I looked at that and I was like, technology, 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 right? The reality is what's happening is now our technology is getting to the point where we actually have better ability to acquire data, manage data, create security and data, create information out of data, and better ability for us to integrate across multiple constituent parts that have been put together, the ability to kind of offer a better, more simplified way for an advisor to implement their portfolios and their practices. So I think that the technology is just going to continue in terms of the investment that the various, you know, companies, you know, like I said, Ryan, you know, the Vestmarks, the Investnets of the world will continue to pump money in, in technology. And what they're really going to be doing is weaving threads through a lot of the constituent parts 
The second thing that needs to be done in terms of an improvement is, and this is, you know, thank you for calling master of the obvious, Arturo. The reality is that we have so much information we now have at our fingertips and so much data that we confuse the living daylight sometimes out of people with the amount of data that we have. So I think that if there's going to be something that I would look to do, and I know this is candidly one of my driving issues within you know, Party Pre, I don't need more data. I need better information. I need better insight. And I think that you, know, you could say, oh, you said that in 1986, right? And the answer is I probably did, but I'm going to say it again. I think that right now, because we've got a lot more technology than we had in 1986, I think the issue for us is not to just create more information and more data, but to help the advisors understand how to simplify their ability to get insight out of that data. And I think that's a big thing that's going to be worked on reporting, analytics, what I call animating the analytics, right? Making it easy for the advisor to kind of see motion and data, see trends in data. I actually think that that's going to be a big thing for us moving forward is to do that. And then I also think that you know, at the end of the day, householding is going to dominate for the higher end clients. That's going to be, and again, you know, the survey was kind of interesting. You know, the, the most dominant thing that advisors want to do is have unified managed household accounts. That's a mouthful and it's complicated. We, we work on that on a day-to-day basis with our, our clients. And we have some very large, as you know, very large asset management clients and they trip all over. It's, it's a lot of spreadsheets and we're like, no, there's a better way to do this. I think the industry has started down the path of trying to do householding, but the reality is that from what we see, it's mostly about reporting and or kind of like tax reporting, right? And I think that what needs to be done is apply technology to enable the householding structure to be integrated to what the overall plan is that the advisor has for the account or the objectives for the client, the investor client, and then make sure that the individual accounts get allocated and located correctly, the securities get located correctly. That's the piece that hasn't been tackled yet, but I think technology will help us solve that. So Art, you have been instrumental in the managed account industry. I am biased, but just kind of giving your resume, there was like a hall of fame for the managed account industry. You should be in it. Just think about it. You've had a leading role in starting and building Fidelity Strategic Advisors, which I, I believe is still the largest mutual fund wrap in the industry. Morningstar Managed Portfolio, huge brand name. So what do you think is, and never mind, SEI, Russell, I could go on and on, and you're still doing stuff. So what do you think is the future of this industry? And again, the same question boils down to this. Real simply, what is the industry doing well and what could it do better? I think we need to, you know, candidly continue to take cues from what advisors need to do to solve the needs of clients. And I would say that part of the answer to your question is in the managed account business, what we need to do is make it easier for the advisors to do two things. One, tackle this householding thing, right? Especially for the higher end clients where it matters, right? And I'm going to come back to what I mean by it matters. Remind me to define what I mean by that. The second thing that we need to do besides the, you know, tackle the UMA or the householding is we need to start focusing on the fact that at the end of the day, the higher end clients work with advisors that do some type of planning work with them, whether it's financial planning, insurance planning, investment planning, whatever you call it, right? There's there's always like a plan that the investor client needs to put together. And I think what we need to do is start integrating what would be quote unquote output from financial plans or investment plans better into the asset structures that we build for clients. And that technology is not there today, largely. If you work with, you know, if you look at InvestNet, they went off and bought, what was it, Money Guide Pro. And Fidelity wound up purchasing eMoney, I think it was. You know, so they took two of the big dogs off the street. And then your company, Orion, bought this firm in New York. I forget the name of it, but it's financial planning, you know. The output from that First of all, it's a great idea to provide advisory. It's a great idea to have the advisors have access to those kinds of tools to think on a planning space for clients, especially those that have enough money where you really need it planned well for it to do something positive, both for the investor and the family over time. 
But the flaw is that, hey, thanks for the financial plan. Now, how are you going to execute it, right? We need to build a bridge between those things and the asset management side of things. And there is a technology piece. And candidly, we've looked at it. We've said from square one in 2019, we started Party Pre, that that is going to be our phase 3.0 of where we are is that to start integrating financial planning output into what we do with portfolio engineering. And it's a hugely complicated thing because you start getting into really thinking about distribution strategies and income-related strategies and and then, you know, making sure certain accounts are put together so that they actually, when they get bequeathed, you know, it's done in a format that's actually, you know, kind of tight for the recipient. It's a complicated thing, but that's something we need to do. Now, in terms of my comment of like, let me tell you what matters. When you're looking at a household, right, you have two sets of taxes you're dealing with. Today's taxes, my tax bill that I have to pay this coming March or this coming April, right? And then I've got my future taxes, right? So the reason why this UMA thing is, or this household, unified household, or, you know, householding itself is really important is you need to tackle two tax gods. Tax god number one is what do I have in my portfolio today that I actually can do to help kind of reduce what my tax impact is on my client right now? And that's either on an ongoing basis or during a transition. I'm moving from this advisor to this advisor what can be done to kind of help that transition. And that's dealing with today's tax bill. But the important part is to locate the assets, specific assets that you purchase, so that they get placed in accounts where the long-term tax impact is minimized. Because essentially, boil it down to, you have a taxable account, you have a tax-deferred account, and you have a tax-exempt account if you have a Roth and IRA and a taxable account, right? And then you've got spouse, you know, you know, spouse one, spouse two, right? And so there's this big, broad account structure. And you have to kind of figure out, relative to the aggregate plan that you need to put in place, how do I actually distill the allocations among the accounts? Because those are fixed, right? The dollars are fixed, right? I just can't randomly add to my IRA or randomly add to my, you know, my Roth, right? I can 7,000 a year, but that's not random, right? You can't move the assets. So the question is with the fixed you know, game, and we call it a game of Sudoku. It's financial Sudoku, right? So we're kind of like moving pieces around the board. And I think the important thing is that both the technology and the methodological issues with doing asset location need to kind of come up the curve even more. So again, long-winded answer to your question, but I think that's where that's going. All right. Well, I'm switching gears a little bit here um, to talk about sort of how you run your businesses and, and how you work as a manager. And the first question is, you have hired a lot of smart people who are having outstanding careers. I can't think of any off the top of my head. but <laughs> <laughs> So what do you look for when you hire people? You know, it's funny. One of my very first bosses told me the most important thing when you're hiring people is three things. One concept. Can they do the job? Will they do the job? And do you like them? Right? So I started thinking about that. And I realized that actually it's a very simplified but very good way of looking at things. Right? So I look to see what is this person's background and educational background and career background? And does it have enough of a base that I think that it'll fit what I'm trying to accomplish with this role that's open? Right. So that's the first thing I think about. The second thing I think about is really, frankly, to me, the most important, which is how willing is this person in my mind to do this? And how motivated are they as a person? And how motivated are they about their career, right? Developing their career and developing their expertise in certain things. So I think that that's kind of a very important kind of second thing that I look at. The third thing is, you know, is this person a likable person? And I'll tell you how that is so important. So if you come to me and you can do the job, but you won't do the job and I like you, then my bet is that I have to motivate you. I have to figure out how, because I like you, I'm going to try to motivate you. If you come to me and you can't do the job, but you will do the job and I like you, then I have to learn how to train you. Right? I got to say to myself, can I train this person, either myself or through education, have them involved in blah, 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 you know, readings, 
can this person come up the curve and learn something? And if they're motivated, the answer is mostly yes, right? And if I like them, it's easy. If they come in and they can do the job and they will do the job and I don't like them, I'm an idiot if I hire them, right? Because that never works. You'll never be able to help somebody on the can side or the will side if there's some sort of personality conflict. So I kind of distill it down to those three things, you know, and thanks to my friend David Lipson who taught me this. I've obviously thought about it and refined it a little bit more. I also think that for me, I like to think, I like to hire people who are outside of the box, right? I'm actually not very corporate. Um, I mean, I've, okay, you look at my resume, it's like, no, no, you're so full of it. You started your career at IBM, you went to control data, you went to SEI, you went to Morningstar, you went to Fidelity, right? What do you mean you're not corporate? The answer is, I like people who think outside of structure. I like people who are trying to be creative in implementing solutions, who think about problems in a creative way and say to themselves, I don't care what the format is that we're supposed to follow, the stamped out answer. I want to know what's good. I want to know what's better. I want to know what's innovative. So I tend to like people who are going to wind up showing a side to them that they're willing to brace, break cubes, ice cubes, glass, and try to come up with something that's new and different in the way things are done. Because candidly, you know, part of, I think, life is we really don't develop a lot of new stuff. We just basically regurgitate and refine the way we do things, right? Very significantly, particularly in this business. And I like people who can kind of think out of the box and say, hey, my favorite expression in my team, my team actually laughs at me because I say it all the time. And, and it's funny, I have my clients. The first time I said it, they were like, who's this hippie saying this stuff? He's like crazy. And now they all say it. And it's this, flip the pancake. Every time you look at a problem, I want you to flip the pancake. And they're like, what do you mean flip the pancake? And I actually, with one of my clients last Christmas, I sent him a spatula that was a custom spatula that said flip the pancake. Because And they all started using it, like, well, flip the pancake. And the answer is, when you run into a problem, turn it upside down and see if the answer is on the other side of the pancake, right? Turn the problem upside down and see if you can come up with an answer. Don't keep looking at it from one perspective, flip it completely around. And so I like to hire people who know how to flip pancakes, if that makes any sense. <laughs> that is a new one. <laughs> I like it. All right. Well, one more for you on kind of on that subject. So you've started quite a collection of companies in your career. So tell us what you've learned from your experience as an entrepreneur. What do you recommend to people thinking about starting their own businesses? There's two sides to that. One of them is nothing ever works the way you think it is. So have your expectation from square one. It's not going to work the way you think it's going to work. And embrace that, right? That you're always going to be running into some type of an obstacle that is going to make it challenging for you to set out and do exactly what you thought you were going to do. The second thing is there is an uncertainty slog, as I call it. You're slogging through uncertainty every single day as an entrepreneur. And whether it's dealing with personnel, particularly you know when you're a smaller company, or whether it's you know financing and capital, there's a certain amount of uncertainty that you just have to like not get all riled up about and upset and you know nervous and just embrace it. That's part of the challenges that you know you got to wake up every day and make stuff happen, right? And you can't let adversity tank you either emotionally or as a firm financially. You have to kind of constantly keep your eyes on, okay, I have a problem. How do I attack this to get to the next step? And then my third thing is that it goes a little bit long, more along to my first one, which is, you know, nothing ever works the same way, is when you run into some obstacle or something that's not working, I don't want to sound like a, some sort of, you know, nirvana dude, but the reality is embrace it as a way for you to rethink whether or not what your original premise really needs to change, right? And so rather than kind of get all riled up about this is not working according to plan, okay, well, step back and say to yourself, what is this telling me about what we may need to do? And you'll find that sometimes there's some really good opportunities to do that. I mean, Party Pre is a classic example of that. We're not doing exactly what we plan to do from square one. 
And, you know, I actually think it's great. I mean, we've been alive for three plus years. We've got decent amount of cash in the banks. We have, frankly, some private equity people that have been coming after us really hard in the last 18 months. We've been given a number of opportunities that, you know, I'm pinching myself like, really, this is fantastic. And at the same time, we're slogging it out every day. So I think that's what I've learned. Just go with the flow. One thing, Art, is like, you know, so you've been a manager and a leader, but you know what? And even all these investment firms, you also have a really nice touch on the markets. And I've always been impressed by your views on it. So I want to actually ask about your market outlook, but more specifically, so I guess, what is your current view of the markets and how are you investing in light of this current market environment? And most importantly, what is your current favorite investment? (laughs) So, you know, it's interesting is I knew this question was coming. I think you told me it was coming. So if you had actually turned the clock back in late 2020, 2021, maybe mid 2021, I was actually fairly concerned that things were getting overcooked. I mean, I did actually, I think it was in June of 20 or July, 2021, I took some cash down in my own personal. I was like, no, 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 no. We're going to reduce our risk here. I just felt that the market post COVID kind of got ahead of itself way too much. So it had this, you know, drop and it took off again. And, you know, the market's been on a tear since 2009 or 10, whatever the, you know, the rebound date was. And really it was kind of, you know, had a few hiccups here and there, but it was, you know, pretty strong. And I just think that no matter what metric you want to look at, particularly in, in, in equities, domestic that is, it was really overcooked. And number two, on the bond side, you know, how much price appreciation versus risk do you have when you're buying stuff that's 2%, 1.5% yield, a government 10, what, what did it go to 1.3? You know, there's not a lot of room there. And you're not also getting not a lot of yield at 1.3. So you look at it as like, well, wait a minute, what's the value of that, right? And I think actually what happened was, this is a little bit unfortunate, but, you know, people start looking at alternatives both the capital A alternatives, right, as well as alternative ways of approaching things. And, you know, some of that stuff's equally risky, right? And I just think that what we wound up seeing was, you know, when the Fed kind of realized like, okay, you know, for something that I consider to be a really exogenous issue, you know, we created this inflation thing and they were like, okay, we're going to crank it up. Well, you know, the, the end of that story is when rates going up, stocks are coming down, right? Now, the question is, where are we? I actually think we're kind of in a bottoming phase here. I know I was reading something from Jeremy Grantham the other day. Jeremy's like, I'm an old goat and he's an older goat, right? But he's a goat, right? He's a goat. You know, he's a Tom Tom Brady goat. Grantham is good, just very big thinker, longer term thinker. And what's interesting is, you know, as you would expect, candidly, you know, given his tenure in the market and his perspective on things personally, his philosophy, he's, you know, thinking that the bottom's still like going to fall out, Right. I think what I've already we've already seen it, right? I just uh, do. I think we have more downside here. Do I think we're going to see from its peak a fifty percent drop? I think we're kissing what thirty percent now from the peak. I think we're going to be in a kind of like this bottoming thing. I think taking a third off of the cream that should never have been as high as it was was probably appropriate from a valuation point of view. And I believe that you know sharing, you know, the sentiment of one of my favorite value analysts, a guy named Rusty Bannerman, <laughs> you know, at some point stuff becomes value, right? The growth manager mantra is that, you know, things of value are not cheap and valuable things or growth things are not cheap, right? Whatever the, the mantra is. The reality is that we've gotten to a point where things have actually come back to earth a little bit in terms of valuations. I think the big uncertainty is more on what the impact of this rise in rates is on actual revenue growth, right? At the end of the day, you know, that'll drive profits, of course. But I think that that where the uncertainty that we're seeing in the market is that if, if, you know, we had another creak up in rates here, whether or not they actually need to bring the economy to its knees in order to clean up this inflation problem. Yeah. So I would just say that in some respects, I think, you know, on the domestic equity side, things are pretty reasonably valued. I think on the foreign side, that's the case as well. But that also really depends on whether or not we're actually have seen business conditions kind of flatten. I'm okay with them flat, right? 
if we keep cranking up rates, then you are going to force us into a recession. So I actually normally stay fully invested. I mean, I do pull some cash off the table every now and then, especially if I know I have cash flows. And, you know, with a 24 and a 22-year-old daughter, I'm the ATM, you know, so God knows what comes around with paying those kids. I like being invested. I would say that I actually would think the bond market's got a little bit more downside to it. If I'm in a nibble in the equity land, I've actually been shifting some of my portfolio toward, you know, mid cap and kind of the higher end of small cap and mid cap. And I actually think that notwithstanding that value has been the dog of dogs for 13 years, there's some good value in value stocks. And so my other theme is to add a little bit of value tilt to it. And I've been controlling volatility a little bit more. I had a growth, you know, pretty big growth tilt thrown on my portfolio. And of course, I walked right into this correction with that growth tilt. I just got my butt handed to me, right? So I've been adding some back in the value space just to kind of taper things off a little bit. You know, I think that, you know, my final comment is, you know, if you kind of look at kind of how you think about going forward is you really need to look backwards. And with really low rates, the way we had them, you know, who does it favor? It favors companies that actually can deploy capital that they can buy cheap and leverage it for growth, right? Which is why a lot of the large cap growth companies took off, right? They could go borrow money at really cheap rates and leverage the daylights out of it, right? I don't know if that's the case anymore, right? I think you're going to find a different environment. So I think there'll be a more diversified or more diverse set of winners in the winning tables going forward. All right. So the next question is one of our kind of our classic closing questions. We got a couple of these, but the first one is, and this should be fun because you mentioned you did were running back in college football, but in our profession, we all have an obligation to perform at a high level. So what are some of the things that you do to maintain your health, both physical and mental, to ensure you're performing at a high level? On the physical side, I'm actually a nut about this. Um, I do not let a single day go by that I don't do something, we'll call it athletic or active. I'm a swimmer and um, I had both my shoulders operated on because I was a distance swimmer. My races were three to 15 miles. When I was in the pool, I was a 1500 meter guy, um, which is, you know, a mile, a mile swim. And I, I blew my shoulders out. I had them repaired and I jumped back in the water about a year ago. Prior to that, I had been working out in a gym, just kind of restrengthening my but I do that every day. And um, I also take walks. If I'm in a hotel today, I go on a treadmill and I just take a walk or I bike. Um, I am a Peloton guy. So uh, when I'm home, I Peloton for you know 45 minutes to an hour. And I do something like that every single day. I also have gotten into understanding the importance of staying hydrated. So I'm, you know, prehydrated all day long, both with electrolyte specific as well as just plain old water. And that's how I kind of keep my body. What's funny, I find myself when my body is feeling better, my mind works a lot better. And in terms of my mind, I think probably the most important thing that I do is I sleep. I try to get eight hours a night and try to really rest. I do these deep breathing exercises where I try to help my body kind of get relaxed and sleep in a very peaceful way by doing some breathing before I go to bed. And it's like, okay, well, that's weird. The third thing I do is I read. I try to read you know, a collection of books that are all over the place. Some of them are business books. Some of them are more, we're working on a lot of stuff right now in kind of advanced wealth management. So we've got a lot of like technical stuff that we read uh, written by some you know pretty, pretty decent quants that we work with. I try to keep abreast of the markets and most of that's, you know, by reading, you know, various feeds that I get through the internet. And then I read some stuff that's just from my mind, you know, about being at peace with things and keeping things in perspective and kind of making sure that you go through life understanding that there's a philosophical aspect of going through life that's really important. And it helps when you can bring to your employees candidly perspective, right? Again, I can say this as an old guy, right? But I think it helps to have, you know, like a level of perspective because we tend to like get our knickers all twisted on the day-to-day, -day, you know, the banging of the pots and pans all day long. And I'm like, let's take a chill pill here, right? Go up to the 10,000 foot view and take a look down. And now tell me what you see. Because when you're in the trenches six below, 
it's a very different view than being 10,000 above. So I think that we, I try to, you know, nurture my mind to kind of keep in mind that we have to drive perspective with what we're doing and um, kind of, you know, be a little bit more wise and thoughtful about the way we approach problems. And my flip the pancake is a perfect example. I remember saying to my client, like, you're banging your head against the wall, flip it upside down. And they were like, oh my God, the, the, the solution's right on the other side. Like, yeah, that's exactly right. And so I think that there's that part of it. So I don't want to sound like an old hippie, but you know, the reality is that there's a lot of advantages, I think, in business to kind of showing your employees how to have a level of perspective about things and you know, really kind of connect all your mind and your body and your emotions with what you're doing in your business. So I know it's kind of a corny answer, but it is what it is. All right. Well, I got one more for you. So you have been around so many successful people who've helped you get to where you are today. And of course, you've been a mentor to so many people as well. But who are some of your mentors? Who are some of the people that you are professionally thankful for? So I mentioned, I think probably one of the guys that had a pretty good impact on me was a fellow named Steve Pizarkowitz, who I worked for at SEI. And Steve, I remember we literally, Steve had a Toyota Corolla. And the first couple of weeks we worked together, we were driving up and down through Connecticut and Massachusetts, visiting his clients. And I was like, I was brand new. I was like, what? And Steve had a really good influence on me. I think he actually actually helped me understand the importance of reading data and interpreting data. I worked for a guy named Steve Jonas and a guy named Roger Servison at Fidelity. And two different Bs. Steve is an accountant by background. He was like our chief financial officer. And he was a level above me, but I reported into him for a while. And then I reported into Roger. Roger was like a strategist, like a business strategist. He was like your classic business school business strategist. And so listening to and hearing Roger talk about things in terms of the way the capital needs to be deployed, I think was really helpful. Steve was a block and tackle guy, like Art Manager P&L. Right. And those were really good lessons because if you're an entrepreneur, candidly, your PL is your lifeblood, right? You really need to pay attention to what's going on with it. I learned a lot about sales and marketing from a guy named Paul Hondros, who I'd mentioned earlier. Hondo was, I worked for him a little while when I was at SCI and I worked for him for a while when I was at, at Fidelity. And he's a marketing and sales guy. He's really good strategically. And I picked up a lot of things from him in terms of like really down in the dirty kind of hard-nosed portfolio construction and particularly quantitative stuff. I worked for this guy, Randy Lert at Russell. Lert is a Berkeley guy and he is one of the most technically proficient guys I've ever met, but he speaks English. And I learned a lot from him. And then I have to say that, you know, candidly, the way I run my shops and Rusty can tell you this, I tend to really delegate as much as I can to my staff, right? I like to put them in a room and say, y'all figure it out, right? Let's agree what the objective is and then you all figure it out, right? And come back to me with, you know, what you think we ought to do because I don't have the answers. Y'all collectively have better answers than I do. And I also believe that the best way to manage teams is to make them debate. Give them an environment where debate is absolutely encouraged. And make sure that your staff is diverse, whether you call that cultural diversity, gender diversity, make sure you have a diverse staff so that they actually can debate from different perspectives. And I think I've learned a lot from my staff. I mean, you know, I learned a lot. I had this guy, Steve Johnson, who worked for me and Johnson sits on my board today. I learned a lot from Steve in terms of thinking about things strategically. He's got an HBS background and he kind of thinks like an old HBS guy. And then I've learned a lot from Joe, candidly, Joe Smith, my partner. Joe is a brilliant quantitative engineer of sorts. And we'll talk about things. And I probably think at a level that's more conceptual. And Joe knows how to translate that. And I learn a lot from him because when I listen to what goes on, to how details need to be put together, particularly in methodological stuff, I learn a lot about you know, how we actually can advance the ball better. And so, you know, it's a long list, but those are some of the folks that I turn to. It's like, yeah, they made the biggest impact on me. All right. Well, one more before we let you go and less Rusty's going to jump in with another, but do you have any recommendations for our listeners on content that you're consuming? Books, podcasts, newsletters, anything you're taking in? So I'm reading this really complicated book right now that I would recommend. Let me 
It's called When Things Fall Apart, right? And uh, it's written by a woman, Pima Chordron, When Things Fall Apart, right? One of the most difficult reads that I've had of any book, it's one of the books that I'm reading like to kind of my perspective book, right? She's a little bit of kind of almost like a Buddhist and in her thinking about things, uh, very Eastern. And you can only read two or three pages and your brain spinning. But I think that that's probably for me, you know, one of the books that I'm really most interested in right now is kind of, you know, again, it's a perspective book. There are a couple of books that we're working with that deal with wealth management and risk. And particularly, we're kind of spending a lot of time reading papers these days, setting ourselves up for doing this bridge between the financial planning and the, the investment implementation. And so my head's pretty clogged with some of that stuff right now. Probably one of my favorite books of all times, which I would recommend to anybody that's going into an entrepreneurial endeavor, whether it's a true entrepreneurial endeavor or something like intrapreneurship, which is like within a large company trying to do something creative, is a book, uh, A Soul of a New Machine. It was written by a guy named Tracy Kidder. It's actually an old book. It's an older print. It is the book that I give away. Most times I give away books. It's Soul of a New Machine. I give it typically to my staff and say, I want you to read this book. And it was about the building of the deck vax machine, right? And the way they built it was kind of a pure skunk works. They deck decided we need to airlift a team of engineers out of their day-to-day activity and have them go build something that was really going to be prominent, right? And so they removed them from the fray of all of the bureaucracy and deck, and they built a new machine. And so it was about how they actually built that soul, right? But it's a fantastic book about what I actually think is a really good way about developing and innovating solutions to problems. So this is some of my recommendations. <laughs> I'm not really, I don't do a lot of podcast work. I'm not much of a TV person either, so I can't recommend any TV programs. Although I understand this program. What's it called? The one in, the, in Bozeman, Montana, Rusty? Is that is that supposed to be Yellowstone with Kevin Costner? Yeah, Yellowstone. Yep. Yeah, Yellowstone. Everybody's talking about that. But anyway, I I think that you know um, our stuff is actually we, we spend probably most of our time reading papers, uh, academic papers, just given what we have to achieve methodologically. All right. Well, that's all good stuff. So this has been a great conversation, Art. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, and tell us how can listeners stay in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing at Party Free. This is great. You know, this is really funny. The best way is partypreinvest.com. It's P-A-R-T-I-P-R-I-A-S-P-R-I-S-Invest.com. We have a LinkedIn page too. But the reason why I say this is really great is we built a website in 2020 and I refused to turn it on. I just told my tech guy, I said, don't turn it on. I don't want to turn it on. And we did that for kind of a specific reason that, you know, we, we, a lot of stuff we do is pretty confidential with the clients we work with. And I, I wasn't real interested in banging the pots and pans right then, but we just recently turned our website on. And so that's one way. And there's a section in there where Joe and I will be adding various white papers and perspective pieces that people can pick up on and, and look at. We'll start posting that stuff in the beginning of the year. We do have a LinkedIn page, you know, not necessarily, you know, it's all that grand, but there. But I think that we probably will use an outlet of our website and we're probably going to start doing some podcasts, which is why I was, you know, kind of just curious how this works, right? We're going to spend our time being a little bit more out in the marketplace. And I think we've been in pretty heavy development mode. On top of that, we've been really, really busy with clients. I mean, we're, we are blessed. We've worked with seven of, you know, very, very large wealth managers, and we're still working actively with three of them. And, you know, their names that you know who they are, very, very monster wealth managers. And we're in the background designing and building, you know, asset management programs for them. And uh, so we kind of keep things on a low key, you know, low profile. But as we move our phase into our business, where we're going to be more public in our offerings, we're, you know, be posting a lot more. So awesome. Well, Art, I really appreciate you being on here today. I've been been wanting to have you on in a long time, and I can't wait to break bread with you again sometime soon. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yes, yeah, good to see you. 
Robin, thank you so much. And I, I hope this has been helpful to you guys and uh, your audience eventually. So keep me posted and we'll talk soon. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks Art. Have a great holiday. You too. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, if you like this episode, please remember to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations Podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.